Sunday, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Next Day Takeaways here on Keyboard Kimura, presented to you by One Bone. I am E. Spencer Kite, your friendly neighborhood Spencer man. It is Sunday, July 30th. We're here to talk about UFC 291, which took place yesterday evening at the Delta Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is quickly becoming Head Kick Central. As we do on the program, we start by running down the results from last night. In the main event, Justin Gaethje defeats Dustin Poirier by second round head kick one minute in to claim the BMF title. The second consecutive event at the Delta Center ended by a high kick. They looked like mirror images of the two. Justin Justin Gaethje from the right side, Leon Edwards last August from the left side, headshot dead. I I have no words. Co-main event, Alex Paheya defeats Jan Bojevic by split decision, 29-28 across the board. Two judges giving Paheya rounds two and three, one giving one and three to Jan Bojevic. Heavyweight feature bout on the main card, Derek Lewis, first round TKO stoppage victory over Marcos Rogerio de Lima, 33 seconds in, hits the flying knee, follows up by beating the hell out of him, takes off his shorts, does a dance, throws his cup into the audience. Maybe the grossest souvenir anybody could possibly leave a UFC event with that I can think of in in the moment. Lightweight bout again, Bobby Green defeats Tony Ferguson by technical submission, an arm triangle choke at 454 of the third round, putting El Kukui to sleep. And in the main card opener, Kevin Holland submits Michael Chiesa with a Darce choke two minutes and 39 seconds in to that one. On the prelims, Gabriel Bonfim locked up his second consecutive first round submission win by guillotine choke, choking out Trevin Giles. CJ Vergara defeated Vinicius Salvador by unanimous decision. 28, sorry, 29-28 across the board. Vergara winning rounds two and three on all three scorecards, much to the shock of Vinicius Salvador. Middleweight belt Roman Kopilov defeats Claudio Hibero, also by head kick. This was the left side, much like Leon Edwards, 33 seconds into the second round. Welterweight action, Jake Matthews submitted Darius Flowers, rear naked choke, two minutes and 37 seconds into the second stanza. Urosh Medic defeated Matthew Semmelsberger with a spinning backfist and punches, two minutes and 36 seconds into the third round of their fight. And in the opener, Miranda Maverick submitted Priscilla Cashwera at 2 minutes and 11 seconds of the third round by armbar after dominating the first two frames. And so with the results settled, it's time to get into the takeaways, hence the name of the show. The first one for me is more overarching in terms of the card itself, in terms of what seemed like a great crowd in Salt Lake City, which seemed like a lot of people online enjoying this event. And for me, this is sort of a throwback. And I I said this in my preview of this event on OSDB Sports. This card felt like a throwback to those days that everybody waxes nostalgic about, where you knew every person on the main card. They weren't necessarily championship title eliminator fights, but you knew everybody and you were invested and so you paid attention. It felt like that's what we got on Saturday. And I sort of come away from it wondering why we can't feel this way and have this more often. It feels like the community 
doesn't embrace these cards the same way that that they do big fights. And I understand big fights like this is nowhere near UFC 290 from earlier in the month. And, and so that part's understandable. But there's no titles on the line here. Yes, the BMF belt was up for grabs, but that's a symbolic title that I don't think we will see again for who knows how long. There weren't any other title fights. There's a bunch of fights here that, like Derek Lewis, Marcos Joserio de Lima wasn't supposed to be on the main card. Fine. Stephen Thompson, Michelle Pejea was. That was a matchup of top 15 fighters. But like a bunch of these are just critical fights for either one side or the other. But they're competitive fights, as I said, between people we know. And everybody seemed on board with it. And so I'm sure the argument will be that the UFC needs to do more of these. Where it's just everybody on the main card after the, after the the before and after the changes, truthfully, has a Wikipedia page, right? Which is a metric and a, and a measure that I absolutely hate, but everybody seems to cling to. I feel like... A card like this, and I'm really interested to see, actually, if a card like this may be a slight downgrade from this, or even a card like this again going forward as a pay-per-view, if it's going to get a warm reception, if it's going to get the opportunity to be well-received. This one felt like it was. It felt like there were a lot of people that were buzzing for this, and I'm very excited about that. I'm very happy about that. And that maybe doesn't come across as I'm sitting here asking questions as to why we don't get this more. But like, why don't we get this more? This was just a good collection of fights. This wasn't a whole bunch of awesome fights, amazing fights, all the stuff that, you know, we usually ask of fight cards. It was just a bunch of familiar names and good fights that had the potential to be really interesting. And they played out that way. And it was a great night of action. And to me, this event, was the quintessential, just just you know you're going to get a good night of fights. Like looking at this card, even talking about this card going in, I wasn't over the moon for this card, but I knew there were good fights here. And I knew there were matchups where I had questions and I was looking forward to getting answers about some of these athletes. And we'll run through them at some point here a little later on in the show. But it was one of those events where you just kind of had the sense of like, this is going to progress this way. And you don't necessarily expect it to end the way it did or be nine finishes out of 11 fights or things of that nature because you expect the altitude to have an impact on a bunch of these fights, which it didn't seem to be. So shout out to all the athletes for sorting that out, unlike last year where it was a surprise to some athletes. But it feels to me like we can get and do get versions of this card. Not necessarily the exact same level, not necessarily parallel to this one, but we get versions of this card regularly throughout the year and they're not often this well-received. I didn't see any, the UFC is expecting us to pay for this crap comments in the buildup to this fight, which is awesome, which is amazing. I'm so happy to see it. I would just like to see more of that because if we, if we actually go through and break this down and parse this out. Bobby Green and Kevin Holland, or sorry, Bobby Green and Tony Ferguson being on the main card. And Derek Lewis and Marcos Rogerio de Lima getting elevated to the feature bout on the main card are kind of things that people normally, because of position, in division, and who they are, 
position and division and, and run of results, people would normally criticize those things, right? Derek Lewis coming in on a three fight losing streak, fighting at altitude against a guy in Marcos Rogerio de Lima. That isn't a big name that is on an, was on an okay run, but wasn't somebody any of us saw as a ascending fighter in this division that would normally not get panned, but not necessarily be the, oh man, this is a great third fight on a pay-per-view. Tony Ferguson coming in on a five fight losing streak doesn't feel like the kind of fight that if, if it's anybody other than Tony Ferguson and it's a three fight losing streak, the people are revolting. But because it's Derek Lewis on a three fight losing streak and it's Tony Ferguson on a five fight losing streak, everything was fine. And I love that. I'm happy for that. I would just like more of that. And I understand that's me coming away the day after and saying, we got some, I would like more. And that's a tough spot to be in. But for me, as somebody that is so focused and so drilled down on each and every one of these cards, I see this reaction and this response and this enjoyment to Saturday's event and just wonder why we can't get it more. Like there's a bunch of fighters on this card that I'm pretty sure a whole lot of people don't know about, didn't know about going in, aren't particularly concerned about long-term going forward, but they delivered and we got a good night of fights and that seems to happen more often than not. And usually when we get to pay-per-views, there are questions about, as I said a little earlier, how does the UFC expect us to pay for this? Why do they want us, they want us to pay this much for this kind of card? This feels like one of those cards that normally would, and it wouldn't, and it's surprising to me. And I, I want to commend the MMA community for not being hypercritical of this event, for sitting down and enjoying this event. I would urge, I would hope, I would kindly, politely request that we give some more of these cards coming up, these fight night events, some of these lesser pay-per-views that aren't tent pole shows, that same grace, that same opportunity to surprise us and deliver more than we just sit back and say, what the hell is this stuff? It needs to be better. Main event, Justin Gaethje draws level with Dustin Poirier 1-1 in their career series. Each has a knockout victory. I don't think we will get a third fight there at a point in their respective careers where we don't necessarily need to run this back a third time, Gaethje said afterwards, unless Poirier felt it was something that he really needed. He doesn't want to fight him again. The thing that I come away from this fight with, and this may be surprising to some people, and I could turn out to be all the way wrong on this. But the thing that I came away from with this is that Justin Gaethje is the third best lightweight in the UFC right now. Number one and number two, Islam Mahashev and Charles Oliveira are still better than Justin Gaethje, are still levels above Justin Gaethje. And we'll find out what the gap is, if there is any, between Mahashev and Oliveira in October in Abu Dhabi. But for right now, despite this brilliant finish and a tactical, technical, smart approach to defeating Dustin Poirier on Saturday, I don't come away from that thinking this guy's going to go out there and beat the winner 
of Mahashev Oliveira too when they run it back. Again, I could be completely wrong, but there are elements to Justin Gaethje's game that just don't necessarily translate to fighting those two men. And it's primarily the wrestling. It's primarily the grappling where it feels like at times he can make mistakes and poor decisions and poor choices and it costs him. We've already seen it against Charles Oliveira. We haven't seen it against Islam Mahashev, but we saw it against Islam's train, trainer, coach, mentor, Khabib Nurmagomedov. And while Gaethje won the opening round against Khabib, as Daniel Cormier talked about on Saturday at the end of the broadcast, there was no part of that fight, at least for me, where Gaethje winning that first round made me go, oh man, this is going to be, I just expected Khabib to come back and do what he did. And I would expect Islam Mahashev to do the same thing and turn it into a wrestling match relatively quickly and probably get Gaethje out of there. Oliveira is a little bit trickier because as we saw in their first meeting, Gaethje hurt him and then got hurt in return himself. So we would have to be wary about that. But it just, it was one of those things to me where it's a great performance. It's a terrific result. I'm super happy for Justin Gaethje. He looked great. He did all the things that he talked to me about needing to do in order to have this victory and be the best version of himself. But I don't know, for me at least, for right now, that it elevates him anywhere beyond where he is right now. If he came into this one behind Poye, and according to the odds, according to the rankings, he was, fine, great, he moves ahead of him into that bronze medal position in the division. And it just may be one of those things that that's where Justin Gaethje ends. And listen, as I say repeatedly on this platform, there is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to being the third best fighter in one of the deepest, most competitive divisions in the UFC. If you are the third best lightweight, and it just means that you can't get past Islam Mahashev, who hasn't lost in a whole whack of years since UFC 192 in Houston, and you can't get past Charles Oliveira, who has only lost once, in the past whole bunch of years, and that is to Islam Mahashev, that's okay. Justin Gaethje has assured himself of a position as one of the all-time great action fighters. One of the absolute, undoubtable, highlight reel, must-see TV competitors in his generation of athletes in the UFC. If he never gets to a title, for me, if he never gets to the undisputed title, None of that changes. I've thoroughly enjoyed Justin Gaethje's UFC career, his career before that as well. It doesn't have to be defined by getting to the absolute summit of the mountain. That he's gotten this far and delivered this many entertaining fights is plenty for me. May not be for everyone, may not be for Gaethje, it is for me. And I don't think this result on Saturday night at UFC 291 changed where I see him within the division, within the hierarchy of that absolute top tier at 155. The co-main event between Alex Pahea and Jan Bojovic, the real only takeaway for me is that Alex Pahea continues to grow and learn and get better. I think there is a tendency to forget how young he is in his mixed martial arts career and that he's came in and come in and is doing this and competing 
against absolute top-end guys. Fine, you want to throw out the first two fights, Andreas Mihalidis and Bruno Silva. Those are get your feet wet, see where you stand, see what you can bring to the table type of fights in the UFC. Perfectly fine. Knocked out Sean Strickland. Knocked out, stopped Israel Adesanya. Lost to Izzy. Now wins a split decision against Jan Blavovic in a fight where he spent the first round in the position where everyone expected him to struggle and possibly lose if Wahovic got there. Jan got there almost immediately. He said to me last week that he wasn't going to come out and just wrestle right away, and he came out and wrestled right away because he understood this is my best path to victory. I am freshest. We are dry. I can get to the spot I want to get to, or I can try to get to the spot I want to get to and see where we go. He got there, and Pahea did all the right things. It wasn't smooth, it wasn't clean, it wasn't easy, but he survived. And just that ability to survive in a division where Jan Bojevic might be the best wrestler, or not the best wrestler, because that would be Magomed Ankalaev, but is a very good grappler against somebody that has such a limited grappling experience and history, to survive that is a huge moment to me. And it doesn't look it on screen. It doesn't look big. It doesn't look flashy. It doesn't look important. But it's massive because it shows that Pahea is growing and continuing to develop. And now he continues to go forward. You take him out of Salt Lake City. He gets more time to train, more time to prepare, more time to get ready and possibly land in a striking delight with Yuri Prohoshka. We will get to the matchmaking at the tail end of the show. But this to me was a important step. We saw in that third round, the second and third round, Jan Bojevic was able to secure takedowns, but Pahea got right back up. That ability to get right back up, not only did it tax Jan Bojevic, but it takes away some of that steam that's inside of him, that confidence that's inside of him, and conversely bolsters it in Pahea because, okay, I can get out of this. The more he learns he can get out of these bad spots, the more dangerous he can be. And there's going to be some athletes in this division, absolutely, Ankalaev being the big boogeyman in terms of the wrestling that he will have to be careful with. But against everybody else, he's kind of got not free reign to go out and throw shots and, and get after it. But this will bolster his confidence. He looked massive in there on Saturday night. He is gigantic overall. We didn't see the powerful striking. I think there's going to be a little bit of warming up period to this division and, and learning that his power doesn't necessarily translate the way it did at, at middleweight, but it's still certainly dangerous. He beat the hell out of Jan Bojevic's leg. He landed some good shots, especially in those second and third rounds. I thought he deserved this victory. I thought watching it that it was a 29-28 for Alex Pahey, I understood the two judges that scored it for him. I don't think Jan was robbed as he claimed on his Instagram. I understand that reaction. I understand that feeling of, I thought I did enough. It sucks. It's the unfortunate side of this, right? Somebody's got to lose in most cases. Sometimes we get draws and no contests, but in most cases, someone has to lose. It sucks that it's a great dude like Jan Bojovic, who is now on a two-fight slide without a victory and and one win in his last four fights, which feels crazy 
but this was a good showing, a, a very important showing to me for Alex Pahea. So the really interesting thing to me from the Derek Lewis fight and the, and the takeaway for me of the Derek Lewis fight is we're now going to see a little bit, potentially, the impact of Francis Ngannou leaving the UFC. So Derek Lewis said in the Octagon on Saturday after his victory, after explaining again why he took his shorts off and all kinds of different things, that that was the last fight on his UFC deal. And that he would love to re-sign with the UFC, but if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. He now has some leverage. For the first time in a long time, there is somebody that isn't a champion, that isn't necessarily in the championship mix, that has some leverage. Because Derek Lewis is a popular, reliable, quality headliner, most knockouts in UFC history, and there's the PFL sitting over there looking for a dance partner for Francis Ngannou's debut next year. With a guaranteed purse of $2 million, there's a history between the two from their atrocious fight years and years ago. And it sort of puts the UFC to a decision, which is all you can ask for if you're Derek Lewis or any fighter, is put them to a decision. Most times, more often than not, throughout their history, both pre and post endeavor, the UFC has said, that's too big a number. We're not, we're not, we're not matching your price. We're not giving you the money that you think you deserve, that you, you are asking for. We're happy to move on. I'm going to be really interested to see if they're happy to move on from Derek Lewis. Cause he would be the perfect opponent for Francis Ngannou in the PFL. It sells as a pay-per-view main event, the lineal, Uf the lineal heavyweight champion against a guy that's beaten him in an ugly fight, a fight that Ngannou certainly wants back, one that I'm sure Lewis even wants back to have a better performance. It's a marquee fight for them, and I'm sure they will be calling Derek Lewis's representatives as soon as they're allowed to, as soon as they can, and it's going to be fascinating to me to see how this plays out. I said this on Saturday night in 10 Things We Learned, but the takeaway for me from the Bobby Green Tony Ferguson fight is that Tony Ferguson is done. Tony Ferguson, as Daniel Cormier said in the during the broadcast, Tony Ferguson wants to fight. He wants to be in there. There was no port, part of him, excuse me, throughout that fight where he showed signs of not wanting to be in there. He was continuing to move forward. He was continuing to engage. This wasn't an athlete that didn't want to be in there and was just out there because he felt he needed to be. And that's great. But want and ability are two different things. And Tony Ferguson is not able to compete at this level anymore. And I don't know that he's the kind of guy that is going to take significant steps back in order to continue competing. He said during his media availability this week that he thought it was five fights and a title. That isn't a guy that's suddenly going to turn around and be like, okay, let me welcome the newest lightweight to the UFC. Let me fight one of these contender series guys. I don't see him being someone that goes the Jim Miller route. At the same time, this was a guy in Bobby Green that he stung early and that isn't in that championship mix. I think super highly of Bobby Green. I think he is completely underrated. 
I think his whole career has been one where he's been underappreciated. So it's great to see him getting some of that love and recognition. But Bobby Green's not a top 15 fighter. Bobby Green is in the middle of that second 15 and he is perfect for who he is and what he brings to the table. And it was plenty to beat Tony Ferguson on Saturday. People are going to say like Tony Ferguson did well in that first round. Great. He stung him. I thought he still lost that round. He clearly lost round two. He was clearly losing round three before he got put to sleep. I don't want to see Tony Ferguson continuing to trudge back out there, telling himself that it's just a matter of time. I've just got to get this one thing right. It's not one thing. It's super unfortunate that he never fought for the undisputed UFC lightweight title. It's super unfortunate that a 12 fight winning streak didn't command and didn't produce that opportunity and that the world conspired in so many ways to keep him and Khabib Nurmagomedov from never meeting in the octagon. But it's time. Somebody in his life, coaches, family, friends, management, somebody has to say, look, we've, we've only got a couple options here. And it's take a big step back so you can get one win and maybe go out on a victory and say goodbye that way. Or we got to be done. Because it's not going to get any better than this. This is the thing that I thought of in watching that fight on Saturday. And I said it in the, in the build to this event. I didn't want to watch this fight because it was going to make me sad. Because it was going to leave me with these feelings that I have right now. Seeing Tony Ferguson on his back, taking those hammer fists, taking those big shots, getting lumped up and beat up, looking at him in the octagon, he looked even older than his 37 years. This isn't the guy that was, I think we all know this isn't the guy that was contending for titles and right there. He hasn't been that guy in a number of years. That guy's not walking through the door anymore. So somebody in his life, some group of people need to get him to either take a monstrous step back to face the level of competition and try to find a level of competition that he can still have success against if he wants to continue to do this. Or they need to say it's time to go. Because I don't want to see him in there with the Bobby Greens of the world anymore. I don't want to see him in there with other veterans that are still competitive and dangerous and operating at a high level because he's not anymore. He's operating at a level that is still good enough to beat some of these lower in the, in the division fighters, maybe. And that's only a maybe. And when you get to that point for me, it's better to walk away than to find out how sad this can really get. So Kevin Holland Gets a slight apology from me. Congratulations on a very good victory, locking up a Dar's choke, drawing out some big reactions, some big movements from Michael Chiesa, who looked wildly uncomfortable in there. The thing that still, <laughs> the thing that still I, I can't wrap my head around with Kevin Holland is that this dude goes out on Saturday and gets the biggest win of his career. The best victory of his UFC career beats a ranked fighter, beats a guy that has been in the top 15 at welterweight for three or four years now, 
jumps on the microphone and says, I'm taking my ass back back to 85. Like, I just don't get it. I mean, I do from a, I wouldn't want to cut weight either, but it speaks to me to the Kevin Holland just wants to have fun. And again, as always, that's perfectly okay, but we need to treat him as such. We need to address him going forward as such. This is a man that doesn't seem to actually care about rankings and progressing up the food chain and working his way towards a title. If it happens, if it comes together organically and naturally and he gets those opportunities, I think he will take them. But I think his focus is just on competing as often as he can and being fun and entertaining and enjoying what he's doing as much as possible. I do not, by any means, begrudge him of that. And so if you want to stop cutting weight and you want to go back to 85, cool. Have fun. I look forward to it. There are fun matchups up there. But I also will be clear that there are limitations to Kevin Holland in that division. We've seen them already. Any grappler in that division, it seems. And maybe it changes. He's brought in a wrestling coach. So maybe there is still more development and it gets even better. And the fun fights turn into fun fights against ranked opponents. And he goes on a run. But I still need to, I'm still taking a wait and see approach. I can't, I can't be a convert yet. This was a very good performance. And I just like, he feels like a guy that stick around 170. You looked great on Saturday. You've got advantages because of your size, your speed, your quickness, your reach, your length, your power. If you are developing as a wrestler, great. Your size is going to contribute to that. I just don't get it. I do not understand Kevin Holland. I think I need to sit down and have a conversation with Kevin Holland one of these days. I'm going to reach out to his people and see if Kevin Holland and I can have a conversation one of these days. It's the next day takeaways on Keyboard Kimura presented by One Bone. We move to the UFC 291 prelims. I don't know how good Gabriel Bonfim is quite yet. Submission wins over Munir Lezez and Trevin Giles. In quick fashion, he spent just over two minutes in the octagon through two fights. Those are tremendous results. You cannot knock the results. I just don't know. 25 will be 26 next month. Or early next month, I believe. A couple of weeks. So happy advanced birthday. I'm not sure how good he is. But I kind of feel... And, and for me, my, my natural inclination with someone like Gabriel Bonfim is to go slow. Because he's not going to get all the way up into the top 15 or the top 10 or facing that level of competition quickly, I don't think. But there's a little piece of it that when you see those two wins and you see how dominant he looked in Saturday's final prelim and he gets on the mic and he says, Neil Magny, you're the guy I want, you're the guy I want to test myself against. You've been the benchmark in the division that I think, you know, maybe we just do it. Now I'll get to the matchmaking and, and the fighter that I would like to see him or the fight I would like to see for him next that reflects what I'm saying, but it's going to be really interesting. Like if you came into this weekend, not necessarily dialed in on watching Gabriel Bonfim going forward, 
You have to be now. You absolutely have to be, regardless of what you think of Lazez and Trevin Giles. And I'm not high on either. I haven't been high on either through any point of their UFC runs, Giles especially since moving to welterweight because welterweight was never the problem in my eyes or the weight class was never the problem in my eyes. You have to be locked in on this kid. 15-0, 15 finishes, two first-round subs in the UFC. You have to be locked in. Welterweight got another prospect to pay close attention to. And I want to pay attention. I think everybody should be. CJ Vergara, Vinicius Salvador, the only takeaway for me is that Vinicius Salvador needs to stop showboating and win a fight before he does so. I said at some point in the second round that Vinicius Salvador was going to be really surprised that he lost this fight by decision while he was doing the arms out Shogun Hua reset after every single strike that CJ Vergara landed. And sure enough, they announced 29-28 across the board for CJ Vergara. And Salvador gave us the like, what? How did I lose that fight reaction? There are elements to his game and elements to his structure, his size, his physicality that could make him a useful fighter in this division. But he missed weight and he plays too much. And it's the thing Sean Madden and I have talked about and kind of bonded over before we became even better friends as we are now. If you have time to go out there and do the come meet me against the cage, that's time you're wasting from punching the other guy in the face or kicking his leg out from under him or kicking him in the body or trying to hit him with an elbow. Go do that. Just go do that. And I understand that I sound like a bit of a curmudgeon that people will say, oh, you don't like fun. No, I'm all for fun. Cody Garbrandt breakdancing against Dominic Cruz when Dominic Cruz couldn't hit him. Dope. Love it. Here for it. Let's go. Anderson Silva being Anderson Silva and calling people over to the cage because he's Anderson goddamn Silva. Let's go. Vinicius Salvador is now 0-2 in the UFC. His win on the Contender Series over Shannon Ross has aged like milk left on the windowsill in the middle of August. Go win a fight. Then showboat. Then do the fancy stuff. Then do the behind the behind the leg kick. Until then, miss me with it. Next two winners are getting lumped together, Roman Kopilov and Jake Matthews, and I put them together because I'm still not sure. Both had very good finishes, second round wins for each of them. Kopilov, high kick, the first of two on the night. Matthews takes Darius Flowers down, gets a submission. Both good performances. Both the kind of results that I expected from these men. But neither were moments and neither were fights where I came away going, I'm all the way in. Because Kopilov had moments towards the end of the first round where Claudio Hibero pressed and he looked wildly uncomfortable. He got hit a couple times and he scurried away like a dude that does not like getting hit. Now I understand. I don't like getting punched in the face, but I didn't choose to be a cage fighter for a living. So it makes sense for me. Kopilov reacted in a way that felt, ooh, this is scary to me. As for Jake Matthews, he just continues to be one of those guys that for all the good moments that we saw in that fight, and there were a bunch, the bodywork was lovely, just exquisite. There are moments where Darius Flowers is pressing him and pressuring him and landing good shots and having success that I just wonder if this is sort of 
always where he's going to be. He's always going to stay in that range that he is in right now, where he can have the good wins over the Andre Fialu kind of win, but then the fights like he had with Semi a couple of fights back. I'm continuing to watch. As always, I am the sit back, take in data, look forward to the next one, see what we can build on. Kapilov is now on a three-fight winning streak. I think he gets a step up in competition. I look forward to seeing it because the good is very good. Same with Jake Matthews. Back in the win column, moving forward, wants to continue competing. He's only 28. I still think there is room to grow. I renew my get yourself to freestyle fighting, get yourself to city, get yourself working with a bigger crew. And I say that as no disrespect to the people he works with now. I'll wait and see, but I don't know how much more there is for either guy. Uros Medic picking up a third round stoppage win over Matt Semmelsberger to me is a very good win. And the takeaway for me is that Medic fits in this division. I said going in, if he gets a win over Semmelsberger and especially if he gets a stoppage, it puts him right into that second 15. They basically, he just inherits Semmel, Semmelsberger's spot in the division. The thing that I really liked about this fight and about this performance is that we saw him take some of those big shots. And Semi is one of the hardest hitters in this division. As I tweeted out on Saturday, the guy has stupid power. Like it's just stupid power. Separate you from your consciousness. Put you on your ass. We saw it in the first round. We saw him hurt Medic twice. In both those instances, Medic recovered and had success of his own. And then over the next two rounds, or round and a half, he got his range, he started doing the technical things, he took advantage of his advantages, of the opportunities that presented themselves, and he got Semmelsberger hurt, and then got him out of there. I don't put a ton of stock in the spinning back fist because you're not going to land that all the time, but I do put stock in the good, constant work that we see from him. The kicks are great, he works the body a lot. He didn't look physically out of place in the division. He's six foot one. So frame wise, size wise, he should fit. There will still be people that are bigger, stronger, thicker, but there's elements to Urosh Medic that works in this division. And I'm looking forward to seeing where we go from here. 30 years old, nine and one, nine finishes, two and one in the UFC, sorry, three and one in the UFC. Now good performance. He's staying in this weight class. Let's just see it. This is a good win. This is a win that we need to just make a little note of because it'll be a good name next time out, I think. And then the takeaway from the opener is that Miranda Maverick has a lot of plus weapons, a lot of plus talents. And I think the thing that's missing right now, and we actually saw a bunch of it in this fight on Saturday, is just the understanding of how to put it all together. She went out there and wisely used the first couple rounds to grind down and beat up Priscilla Cachuera and get her to a point where it's easier to submit her and you don't have to chase, you don't put yourself at risk. There was a point in the first round where she climbed to mount and it felt like she was going to go out and get the finish in the opening stanza. She got a little hurried in it and Cachuera got out from underneath her, scrambled back to her feet and Maverick had to go back to work. And I think that's why we saw the second round. She was content to just get to dominant positions, get to 
advantageous positions and punish. And then in the third, when she got there and the opportunity presents itself, she grabs the arm, extends, gets the finish. I still think she has the upside and the ability to be very much in that pack of young talent that we see climbing the ranks in the feather in the flyweight division. Excuse me. Aaron Blanchfield, Macy Barber, Casey O'Neill, Natalia Silva, Jasmine Jazdavicius, who beat her out here in Vancouver. That group is, is moving forward. And Jazz has a big fight coming up. Tracy Cortez. Tracy Cortez needs to be included in that pack. She's undefeated in the UFC. I think Maverick has all of the elements to be a part of that group. I actually think she can be one of the top kind of second or third in that group. Cause I think Aaron Blanchfield has separated herself from the pack, but I think she, Maverick can be the number two or the number three. She's a good wrestler. She's strong. She's physical. She's already run level with Macy Barber in the past, regardless of how that decision played out or where you stand on it. They fought tooth and nail. It was a super competitive fight. Both have grown since then. I would love to see it again at some point, but she can hang with that pack. I think she can hang with a Casey O'Neill. Natalia Silva might be a little different. And I, I really like Natalia Silva. I think she's one that can really ascend out of this group because there's a different level of athleticism there and bounce and speed and quickness and stuff like that. But this is a very good win that gets her moving in the right direction. The other part of this, the other takeaway from this for me is that this is how you do short notice. This is how you do raise my hand to fill in for somebody. She didn't like coming out here to Vancouver and the way things went with Jazz Davisius. She got poked in the eye or scratched in the eye and has had eye problems in the past, dealt with it, just got herself through that fight. This is the way you do it, where you look at an opponent and you say, I have significant advantages here. I can go out and win this fight. Yes, there's elements I got to be wary of. Yes, there's pieces where I have to be careful, but I can go out and get a victory and get myself moving in the right direction again. We see too often that people are quick to raise their hand in situations where it doesn't make sense. And I would urge management, I would urge coaches, I would urge athletes to do a better job of navigating those moments. Because always saying yes, as much as it sounds like, and in your head it feels like the right thing to do because it ingratiates you to the UFC. Worry about your career first and the victories and the results first. The other stuff will come. The other stuff is going to sort itself out. And I'm not saying that the UFC doesn't take care of people because they certainly do. But you go out and take care of you. Pick the right spots to do the quick turnaround and the no camp or the short camp or the filling in. Maverick did the right thing on Saturday. She picked a very good fight to make a quick turnaround, short notice, fill in appearance. And it paid off in, in great returns. Which brings us to the matchmaking portion of the show. And we're going to go in reverse order. So we're going to work our way from the bottom of the fight card, from the start of the fight card, up to the main event, up to Justin Gaethje. So we're going to start with Miranda Maverick, who for me comes off this good win, but lost last time out, has been a little inconsistent in her last couple fights. So keep her out of the top 15. Keep her out of facing someone in that group. Because if you look at that division, you look at 125, it's a bunch of dangerous fights. And I know she's capable 
I know she desires those opportunities, but let's do one more outside of it. So for me, the name is Ariane Lipsky, who's coming off a couple of good wins, beat JJ Aldrich one last time out, has won two straight, is in that same 28, 29, starting to put it together a little bit feel working with Amanda Nunes down at the Lioness studio. So let's do one more outside of the top 15, see which one of these two really has progressed and really has dialed some stuff in to go forward. And then we worry about top 15, either very late in the year or early into 2024. For Uros Medic, as I said, I think beating Semi puts him right into that second 15 where Semi was. So get him in there with somebody that has already been in the cage with Semi the Jedi, and that's Chaos Williams, who's coming off a good but not great victory over Rolando Bedoya last time out after a year away. He's had some good wins. He's had some uneven performances. He's a powerful guy, similar to Semi. It's a it's a very similar comparable matchup for Medic, but it's also another test. Let's just see again how he can do against a big hitter, against a more athletic, better movement guy, because there's no need. I don't think you hustle him too far forward, but I also don't want to just draw him back and pull him back too much. So Chaos doesn't have a fight announced as far as my understanding. Feels like a guy that also needs a win over somebody like Medich that is in that, another win over somebody that is in that second 15. Semi wasn't quite there when they fought. And while he had those early wins and those knockout wins, and one of them was Alex Morono, who's very much the president and mayor of the second 15, it came so early that it didn't feel like we understood and it got Chaos Williams to a bigger place right away. So let's do that one. Two guys that can go out. It's a great fight as a main card fight on a fight night show. It's a terrific prelim on a pay-per-view should be an entertaining fight, should be an action fight, very similar to this one. Why not do it again? For Jake Matthews, this one may sound surprising to some people, but I want to see him in there with Michael Malott. Malott won out here in Vancouver at UFC 289, stopping Adam Fugit in the second round, first time in his career. He has gone to the second round to get a, to get a victory. It feels like one of those kinds of matchups. So the logic for me is this. Michael Malott was the breakout star out here in Vancouver for UFC 289, but he still needs a fight against a established foundational kind of name. Jake Matthews brings that side of things. He is that kind of fighter. He's been in the UFC for nine years now. He's got a number of wins. He's now coming off a good victory here. That works for the Malott side of things. For Jake Matthews, I need to see that he can go out and continue to beat these well-rounded, fully-formed, seasoned martial artists. And I understand that Mike Malott doesn't have nearly as much experience as Jake Matthews, both in the UFC and overall. But Malott is, is a complete fighter. He is a very well-rounded fighter. Clean, powerful, technical striking. Very good on the ground as well. It feels like the right kind of, this is a guy you beat, and then we can move you forward. If you can go out and defeat this guy, we will move you forward. It will be the thing that propels you closer to a top 15 matchup. Same goes for Michael Malott. You go out and beat this 28-year-old kid 
that has a bunch of athleticism that is good kind of everywhere and the winner goes forward. And for me, it's always just about getting somebody that moves forward and a pairing like this, the winner automatically moves forward. For Roman Kopilov coming off a third straight win, I like the idea of Jung Young Park, who won a couple weeks ago in Las Vegas, who has been largely successful in his UFC career, save for the loss to Gregory Rodriguez. But both feel like they are just outside of that top 15 and need one more kind of impressive performance against somebody that has a little bit more seasoning, that has a little bit more UFC experience to them. Kopilov, of course, coming off the victory over Claudio Hibero on Saturday. Park coming off a win over Albert Duraev. So both guys coming off victories over Contender Series alums. Now let's get them in there together. Two guys that are moving forward and having success on nice little winning streaks in the middleweight division, currently outside of the top 15. Winner gets a spot in the top 15, or at the very least, gets a date with somebody in the top 15. I would fully understand moving them forward individually, but this feels like the right way to go. For CJ Vergara, I'll be really interested to see if he isn't tapped to replace Cody Durden opposite Bruno Bulldog Silva. So Durden raised his hand to face Jake Hadley next weekend in Nashville, was originally paired up with Bruno Silva, bounced out of that fight to face Hadley in Music City. Bulldog needs an opponent. I think CJ Vergara makes a good opponent. Now it's a dangerous fight. Bruno Silva has big power. We've seen that over the last several wins, but it's also a chance to turn around and face a guy that's just outside that top 15. It's the kind of fight CJ Vergara needs to take and win in order to get this career moving forward. And not that 32 is old, but he's 32. And in a division where there are a lot of young fighters, a lot of younger talents that are south of 32, he needs to just go. He needs to just go out there and get the kind of win that propels him forward and gives him the greatest opportunity going forward. Bruno Silva facing him, beating him could be that opportunity. For Gabriel Bonfim, I mentioned Alex Morono a little bit ago as the mayor of the second 15. He is the guy that I feel would be a great matchup for Gabriel Bonfim next time out. I understand the young Brazilian wanting to fight into the top 15. For me, it feels just a little bit too soon. Let's get one against somebody that has had consistent success in this division that is a proficient striker, that is good on the ground, that isn't going to make necessarily the technical mistakes that Munir Lizez and Trevin Giles made in Bonfim's first two fights. He did well to capitalize, and he attacked that guillotine on Saturday. It wasn't so much Giles making a mistake as Bonfim diving after it. But let me see him against one of these tenured vets. Let me see him against a guy like Morono that has been in there, that we know what a victory over him means to carry him, to carry Bonfim potentially forward into that top 15 fight that he is after. Because the thing for me with Bonfim or any young fighter that is on a good run like this, that is looking for top 15 opportunities, we've seen that fighters in the top 15 in a lot of these divisions, very much including welterweight, aren't actively looking to fight backwards, aren't actively looking to face the young, up-and-coming, dangerous threats. 
right? There's only a select number of guys in that division that are willing to do it. And not everybody can fight Neil Magny. And so I would hate to see him languish on the sidelines for eight, nine, 10, 12 months waiting for that opportunity that doesn't come rather than going out there and just take that next step. Instead of skipping a step, take the next logical step. Face an Alex Morono. You beat him, then it becomes a little bit harder for these guys in front of you to deny you because you're not looking to jump steps and really fully only use their name to elevate you even further. It just feels like the better progression. It feels like a more logical fight in terms of something that will come together. And it's what I would love to see for Bonfim next. So for Kevin Holland, it all depends on where he fights. If he sticks around at welterweight, he made quick work of Michael Chiesa on Saturday. A couple weeks ago, Jack Della Maddalena had a tough fight, but another victory over, ba over Basil Hafez. Let's pair those two up. And if we can do it in Sydney... In September, I'd be on board. Della may not want to do that. He had a couple of weight cuts in very short succession. It would be a quick turnaround. It would be six weeks from now to be fighting on that fight card. I know Kevin Holland would probably be down for that. But that's a fight I would love to see if Holland sticks around at welterweight. Just Della's just in that top 15, but doesn't feel similar to Bonfim, right? Isn't a guy that the people in front of him are going to be lining up to face. Steven Thompson isn't rushing out to face Jack Della. Vicente Luque, should he get through Rafael Dos Anjos in a couple of weeks' time, isn't rushing out to sign up for Jack Della. Sean Brady doesn't want those problems. He was signed up to have those problems and got hurt. I don't think he necessarily wants those problems either. Kevin Holland is a guy that is happy to accept all challenges, any problems, and I love him for that. If he does go back to middleweight, I think you stick him in with the winner of the Nasruddin Imovov Ikram Aliskarov fight that is taking place in October in Abu Dhabi. I know that screws up his desire to fight twice more this year, which is certainly a possibility given how frequently Kevin Holland likes to fight, especially if he goes up to 85, where it's not as much of a weight, excuse me, not as much of a weight cut. But I also still want to see and need to see what this wrestling progression, what this wrestling development is like. And Aliskarov 100% will wrestle. And Imovov, should he be the winner, can wrestle, does wrestle, will wrestle if he needs to, but is also happy to go out there and bang it out on the feet. I think both guys would be an interesting matchup. It's a top 15 opponent. If you go out there and beat them, it gets Kevin Holland into that top 15 once again. And so either way, regardless of division, there are going to be options. There are interesting fights. Let's do something fun. Let's do something interesting and go from there. In terms of Bobby Green, it's, it's tough to me because I think Bobby Green is best suited being in the sort of fights that he's been in of late. Tony Ferguson is a bigger name and more high profile name just because he's been around and he was in that mix for a long time. But it was Jared Gordon. It was Drew Dober. He jumped into the Islam Mahashev fight, but it was Nasrat Hakparast before that and Ally Aquinta. So I think he remains in that second 15 gatekeeper, fun fights, stuff that makes sense, other veteran guys. 
And the name for me that came to me yesterday in putting this together and looking at it quickly as we're going on the fly was Drakkar Close. Now I understand that Close is coming off a torn ACL suffered last year in advance of his fight with Mark Madsen, which was the end of October of 2022. So he's probably just now a year removed from that injury. And so I don't know what the timeline is for him coming back. But Dracard Close is one of those guys that he's on a two-fight winning streak. He's had a great deal of success overall in the UFC. And they fought before. It was a close, competitive fight. They feel like guys that are in kind of that similar position. I would love to see that one again. It gets two veteran guys in there without it being somebody's getting thrown to the wolves, somebody's getting raised up too far. If they don't want to do it as a rematch, again, it happened five years ago, so it feels like it was miles away. There are plenty of other options, but someone in that range for Bobby Green. If he wants to be, and if the UFC wants to use him as sort of the litmus test, as the measuring stick for a guy like Joel Alvarez that won last week, certainly. Love it. All the way in on it, right? The name I had for Alvarez last week was Carlos Diego Fajaya. And so Bobby Green sort of fits that bill as well. You want to do that? Let's go. Makes sense. I'm in for it. But I also have no problems with Bobby Green continuing to face veteran guys, similar guys to where he's at in his career. Derek Lewis, as I said earlier, it all depends on if he sticks around. And if he does, I think you just put him in there with Alexander Romanov and see what happens. Romanov looked better last time out against Blagoy Ivanov. Got a good win, not a great win. Brings some stuff to the table that Derek Lewis has struggled with in the past, but is also a big stationary kind of target. Not quite to the level of DeLima on Saturday, but a guy that Derek Lewis could potentially go out there and bang on. It would be a worthwhile co-main event, a worthwhile main card heavyweight fixture on one of these bigger shows, an ABC show or a, a tentpole ESPN show at some point later this year, like the December Stewart Scott show, Jimmy V foundation show, which historically has taken place in Orlando. That's the kind of guy I would like to see Derek Lewis fight. I don't need him to be facing those top tier kind of guys. He doesn't need to face, you know, Alexander Volkov or, any of the guys that he's already faced. Get him in there with somebody new. Get him in there with somebody that could benefit from beating Derek Lewis if that's how it plays out. I will be very curious though. If I was a betting man at 10.42 a.m. on Sunday, July 30th, I would bet that Derek Lewis lands in the PFL. The last two are pretty straightforward. Alex Pahea, Yuri Prohashka. We don't know exactly what the situation is or, or how the UFC is going to choose to move forward with the light heavyweight title. Jamal Hill talked about relinquishing it. It hasn't happened yet. My thought would be that that belt gets vacated as a torn Achilles tendon is at least a year, but maybe longer. So similar to Prohashka, Hill gives up the belt. We have a vacant title. Pahea and Prohashka for the vacant belt makes all the sense in the world and would be an absolute dream fight. And then for Justin Gaethje, we talked about it earlier. The winner of Islam Mahashev versus Charles Oliveira. Gaethje gets another shot at undisputed gold. We see if he gets there. I don't know whether it happens, but I'm certainly 
as always with Justin Gaethje, interested in paying attention to see if he can. And that, my friends, is episode 38 of the Next Day Takeaways here on Keyboard Kimura, presented to you by One Bone. UFC 291 is in the books. We move to Nashville this weekend. A very good fight card overall, headlined by Corey Sandhagen and Rob Font. I will be back throughout the week with the usual accompaniment of content here on this platform, as well as on UFC.com, a Friday piece on OSDB Sports. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Spencer Kite. Check out the boys at One Bone, at One Bone Brand on Instagram, OneBoneBrand.com for all your apparel needs. ESK20 at checkout for 20% off your first offer. Subscribe to the Keyboard Kimura newsletter, SpencerKite.Substack.com. Free subscription, five bucks a month, 50 bucks a year. However you sign up, I appreciate it. I welcome you to the family. I hope to be putting out content that you engage with that excites you that gets you fired up for these fight cards because i absolutely love this stuff happy to be back happy to have a great card to build off of as we go into nashville i hope you have a great sunday i hope you have a great start of your week i love you i appreciate you take care of yourselves take care of one another talk to you later in the week